Hello, and thanks for listening to this episode of the Healthcare 360 podcast. I'm Rob Fields. I'm the Chief Clinical Officer here at Beth Israel Leahy Health. I'm very excited to have a friend for the last couple of years here, Meg Kepke, joining me today for what I think is going to be a great discussion on policy and its impact in the world today of complexity in which we all live in from a policy perspective. But Meg, thank you for joining us today. Rob, thanks for having me. I'm so glad to be here. So Meg, if you don't mind, we always have folks introduce themselves a bit and tell us about their passion for what they do and how they got to where they are, if you don't mind sharing what you feel comfortable with. Yeah, sure. So I've been working in healthcare really since I started working in high school. I was a hospice volunteer. It's what I chose to spend my extracurricular time on. Interesting vocation for a 16-year-old. Um, <laughs> and I kind of never left. I mean, I love to make great grand sense of our career journeys, but really there's just been so many problems to solve in healthcare and so many great people to do it with that I just kept following my nose. And initially that took me into healthcare delivery organizations focused on home care and specifically total parental nutrition at home. So home IV care. Uh Yeah. And I had patients, a patient panel. I was non-clinical, but I had a patient panel of folks who were chronically or terminally ill and could not get their nutrition from food. And that was really impactful to me as a college student. So this is what I was doing nights, evenings, weekends in college. And from there, I worked for a short time for a health insurance company. And that was enlightening. There was a 10-week training course to learn how to provide service to members within a health insurance company. And I thought, well, this would be a good measure of whether we've gotten healthcare transformation right. Like, let's check in on how long this training courses, you know, 10 years from now. (laughs) So I wandered, but meaningfully in policy, healthcare spaces and healthcare delivery spaces. I have a master's in healthcare administration, and that eventually took me into running an ACO, which led to going to the innovation center at CMS. And now together with some of the folks that I met there, we have kind of a little niche practice of professional and direct consulting services for organizations and government that are still engaged in this transformation of care. And I guess if there was one place in healthcare that I'm most passionate about, it's that middle layer of doers that have to connect how we're paid, how the policy has been written, how it implements, how we engage physicians, clinicians, patients in it. Right. I have a lot of empathy for that middle layer. You know, maybe it was less shocking to you, but I would say, and this is coming from someone who I started my own practice and didn't realize what I didn't know about healthcare financing and economics and how it impacts actual care. It's embarrassing, actually, when I go back and think about it, that I dared try to start a business not knowing anything about it. But I continue to be surprised about how little folks actually understand about how the world works around them, both from policy and then the sort of economic point of view. And I know we're going to talk about lots of other things, but I'm wondering about your approach to that. Like, how do you even start the conversation with folks that are just starting to try to figure this out and perhaps frustrated, but looking to try to address it and fix it? I don't know that I always do this, so the public can keep me honest about it, but I think the best place to start is listening to where the experience is happening and what the pain is and trying to understand what is at the root cause of that. Is that a pain that a clinician is experiencing it or if a policymaker is experiencing it with a program, sort of, is that a pain that's really being caused by the area of decision-making and implementation that they think it is, or might there be a different root cause to that particular frustration? I would like to think that we're good at this, but we do try to lead with that listening. I think 
The other thing is lead with the humility. So when I went to work in policy after having worked for a healthcare delivery organization and a health insurance company, I had a leg up in reading public policy. Mm -hmm. You know, that a lot of my, like if they were lobbyist friends or people in associations, they had never worked in healthcare environments before. They were used to reading legislation. And so just carrying the humility with me that I was better at understanding policy when I had worked in care delivery. I was better at coming back out into care delivery and advising organizations on how to make this transformation, having lived on the federal policy side of it and wrestling with what we're trying to change globally in how care is delivered and paid for so that we're generating better health outcomes. I think that humility is helpful. Totally agree. I know you and I have had multiple conversations over the last few years, and I always got and still get the sense from you that one of the things you feel passionately about and directly related to the value movement, but I think broader than that as well, is your support for primary care and how you think the policy changes will, I think, hopefully really demonstrate and extract the value of primary care that hasn't really been delivered in the standard fee-for-service system. And tell me a little bit about maybe from the ACO time before your time at CMMI, but even during your time with the federal government, how you have seen that evolve and did we get there at all? Is there progress? I think we have to believe there's progress. Sure. But I think that it's really challenging right now. And I see that timeline that you asked me to think about from prior to going to government to now, I think we've seen some peaks and valleys. So when I was working on the side of integrated delivery systems, we were very hopeful that the beginning of the accountable care organization movement would help us shift the paradigm from primary care in the business of healthcare being a driver of acute utilization. Right. And actually flip that pyramid upside down and say hospitals are the cost center (laughs) and primary care is really what's driving the value. I don't think the pyramids have shifted. So I don't think we've, you know, if we're looking to check the box, did we make progress on that? That's a really big aim. And so that we're not fully there yet, I think is perhaps not the measure of success to have in mind right now. And then I think the reality of just the pandemic, I mean, this took workforce challenges that we've been aware of in primary care forever. It took margin challenges that we've been aware of in primary care forever. It took the churn that patients experience when we have this insurance that's constantly changing with every job that we take. And it turned up the heat on all of that, created for a ton of burnout, right, on behalf of primary care. So I don't know what it looks like in your neighborhood, but in my backyard right now in the Twin Cities, Minneapolis and St. Paul, primary care is eviscerated. Yeah. I think we're doing a little better here, but it's still a problem. It's all relative, I guess. We maybe had it too good for too long in Minnesota. And now we're seeing the real challenges of physicians not wanting to go into that practice, the burdens, the administrative burdens of these programs that we put in place to try to have the emphasis and the investment in primary care be what it needs to be to deliver the space for that patient-doctor relationship to really thrive and to drive good health. You know, I think it feels a lot more like administrative burden in the experience of it. And so we kind of, I think we need a bit of a rebirth. I don't think that's too much to ask for after a pandemic. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think you're totally right in so many markets that we would just see, as you say, the pyramids haven't changed, right? We haven't changed fundamentally the way we work and what we prioritize in the greater ecosystem. Having said that, I do think I've been pleasantly surprised here in Boston in terms of 
for so many different brands and large academic centers, there is an intense amount of priority on primary care development and growth, which I'm really thankful for. And I don't think it's typical in most academic centers for all the reasons you said before. I don't think was less true in New York. But I think what I have found here, which gives us a nice platform to work off of, is that the physician relationship to a primary care physician is fairly strong and often determines a relationship with the entire ecosystem. So if you are a patient of someone within Beth Israel Leahy Health, you are more often going to stay within the system. And that's a strategic importance in lots of ways as we think about our growth and development. And what it allows us to do is to think about, like my personal goal as a family doc in this role is to have BILH be the destination site for primary care, and certainly in the Boston area and certainly in the Northeast. That's great, but then when I look around, we don't have enough of them. And so I think both, you know, we'll have to recruit three, four, five X more primary care physicians than we have to meet the growing demand. But I have real worries, you know, that that won't be enough and, you know, I have to come with a lot of redesign. I don't know how you think of when you think of even in your own market and, you know, a large city that when you say that primary care is eviscerated, it's really very sad. But then how do this health systems look at that strategically? Do they care? Because I've heard some health systems say, you know what, we're just going to get out of the primary care business. We're going to focus mm-hmm. on tertiary and quaternary care. And I don't know what you're seeing, not necessarily in Minneapolis exclusively, but in your consulting roles. Yeah, great question. So I'm definitely not a practice expert right now on what is happening in my own backyard. I experience it mostly as a patient. But I think the thing that gives me hope about primary care is it is still forefront of my So where we have gone with this value movement, there is no doing it without primary care. So whatever primary care challenges are, we got to tackle them. And we see some glimmers of hope with that. I don't think any of the health systems in my own backyard are trying to divest of primary care. I think they are thinking, how do we belt and suspend it with virtual care, with allied health professionals, with various relationships with community and home and community-based services, to just to try to scaffold the whole infrastructure. But nationally, we see a lot of focus in primary care around chronic and complex care management and around the technologies that support that, the patient list, the workflows that can be integrated into your electronic health record, the incorporation of community health workers into care coordination practices. And that work still seems to be moving forward, even though, like we said, we haven't flipped the pyramid upside down. Yeah. Do you think that the, because I know you work with health systems, you said, as well as government and other agencies, I know you've done a ton of work when and continue to work with NACOS while I was there. But on the delivery system side, in my mind, if I'm talking to a CFO or strategist on the health system side, I say, look, if your market share historically had a mix of government and commercial, but essentially all of your margin in the traditional setting was happening on the commercial side for the most part, but your government share is going to grow just because of the aging population and the shifts, right? That is out of your control. You are therefore going to have to get pretty good at the value-based care stuff in that government space because as they take up a large larger share of your patient base, your future sustainability is really dependent on changing the model, not just economically, but also from a delivery standpoint to be successful in those economic models, those value models. You're going to have to get really good at the pop health stuff traditionally. That was, I think, in many cases, an afterthought for a lot of systems. Do you agree or do you approach that differently or do you have a different message that kind of gets 
folks paying attention? I think a lot of the folks we encounter are there on government programs. And the thing that we find ourselves having to puzzle through is, and what of commercial? Because it doesn't work to have, even if it's 60% of my population is Medicaid, managed care, traditional Medicare, NMA, still 40% is this commercial population. And if I'm paid fee for service on that, and to boot, if I'm paid a generous fee in fee-for-service for that. What am I really doing in terms of economies of scale across the people, process, and technology that are going to support population health? And where does it fall down? And what am I not learning about how to really help people upstream who are in their working years before they get to my, what'll be 25 years from now, my great value-based care population health practice for 65-year-old and plus. So I think that's more where we struggle to get the uptake and the buy-in and frankly, the business case for it. You know, these models, these programs, they have to have enough payment in them to incentivize the fact that you're actually trying to eliminate avoidable expenses, which, you know, your avoidable expenses are my revenue, or in some cases, my avoidable expenses are my revenue. Right. (laughs) And so, and my revenue is my salary for my employees. My revenue is what I negotiate across a nurse's union table. So it's not, you know, not every actor in the healthcare marketplace is posting the kinds of margins that make bad front pages and of newspapers. And so I think there's a lot to be nuanced through in trying to achieve savings and have a stable, strong, financially healthy health system. I mean, I want that as a patient, right? I don't don't want to go to the health system that's barely getting by. I want to go to a health system that's going to be there tomorrow. And I want to have an appointment with a doctor that I'm going to be able to see tomorrow and a care team that I'm not going to have to re-explain exactly who I am tomorrow. (laughs) And those things are all really important to stress. And I think those are the lessons we're not learning as much of right now. We're not learning as much about how to succeed in generating better population health for commercial populations because the optics of it and the, the mechanics and the financial optics of it are just much less pressing. Yeah, that's totally fair. I'm going to ask a potentially uncomfortable question. Part of my observations as a value-based person, right, and a leader for the last several years is that there is a lot of responsibility to go around for everyone in terms of why we're in the mess we're in, right? For sure, health systems are a part of the problem. For sure, payers are part of the problem. But one of my biggest lessons, actually, frankly, in my New York experience, and, and also to some degree in the pushing these heavy, these urban markets with highly branded systems is that the consumers are sold bear some amount of responsibility for the behaviors that we see in the health systems. I'm posing this as a statement, but you can certainly disagree, of course. I would say an observation, not a fact, but an observation. There is some responsibility on the part of consumers, right? Like we used to say in New York, if you hurt your shoulder for 15 seconds, I got to go to the number one orthopedic hospital in the world because that's what you do in New York. If you have a shoulder problem or a knee problem, you go to this place. If you've got a heart problem, you go to this place. And it was independent of quality and value. Those decisions were never made from a quality and value perspective. It was almost 100% a brand choice. And that drives certain behaviors in terms of pricing, et cetera, because you can do it, frankly. If you're one of those heavily branded systems, you can negotiate higher rates. There's a lot of power that comes with that. Agree, disagree, and and would you reframe that a little differently? I love this question. So I completely reject the consumer responsibility in healthcare. And here's so this will be this will make great great podcast content. (laughs) So here's what I would say. I think that our transformation in healthcare. I've been thinking a lot about what helps and what hurts. And really, this is change management. 
And change management in the way that I was taught is you have to have awareness that something needs changing. Then you have to have a desire to change it. Then you have to have an ability to change it or a knowledge of what it is that you could do that would change it. And then you have to have the ability to do that thing. And then there needs to be some kind of reinforcement. And when I put the consumer through that journey, maybe consumers have a great awareness of how price differential is between the care they might seek at one place and the care they might seek at another. But you and I both know that's not as obvious as the price of the television. You can't Amazon that. And they're not maybe exposed they to have it in all a- fairness, right? Because they have co-pays and co-insurance that mitigate. Sure. And thank God, because if they were exposed to the full price of it, then nobody would be be able to afford any kind of health care. And so you go through each one of those change management things. Do they have a desire? Well, when you're sick, you have a desire to get help. Mm -hmm. You don't have a desire to be the most perfect acting agent in a healthcare ecosystem. Then I go to knowledge. So if they had awareness and they had desire, do they know what it is that they could do? Do they know you could go and look at now health plans and hospitals need to post all of their charges? Have you downloaded one of these files? Have you looked at the... I was involved with that in my last system. Yeah, it's a mess. And it's excruciating for those of you who are trying to put that transparency out there. And it is utterly unusable. I mean, it is useful for a couple of trade associations that are advocating on behalf of transparency and patients and whatnot. It's not useful to Jane who needs care tomorrow. That's not a place to go. And then you go to ability, like maybe my health insurance, maybe that place that I would want to go, like that's not in network for my health insurance. When I go through all these things and I actually bother to care, bother to know, and I can access the information, do I even have the ability? Well, sometimes yes, sometimes no, and for lots of reasons. You know, with the advent of more accessible virtual care, I have sometimes faced the choice of like, it's probably cheaper and easier for me to get virtual care right now, but if they can't solve my problem, then I had a virtual care appointment and I have to make an appointment. And I'm a woman with aging parents and children and a job and a business to run. And so I'm just going to go to urgent care because that's all I have time for to take care of this today. Was I a bad actor in that? So I think this notion of, for all those reasons, I get to this place where I'm like, I don't know that it's the consumer. I think we just have to work on care being better everywhere and care being more affordable everywhere and not having these pockets where if you step off the curb in the direction of that system for that service today, oops, you cost the system three times as much. I think that's the problem, not the fact that the person, that the individual might have stepped off that curb. That's totally fair. And I do want to distinguish because I've often made a similar point to what you just made in terms of why individuals behave the way they do, right? Why does an individual patient go to the ER instead of going to their primary care doctor? Or why do they go or urgent care using your example as opposed to their primary care doctor? Or why do they go to the provider of the same type that's 10 times more expensive than the other? Well, a lot of times that has nothing to do with anything other than the design of the whole system, what's convenient, what's appropriate. If you are an hourly worker that can't take time off work and your most convenient place is at 6 p.m. or after hours, whatever that may be for you, because then you don't lose wages or you don't get dinged at work. That's often the driver of those kinds of decisions, not because they are, you know, bad stewards of healthcare resources. Having said that, though, I guess I'm less sure, right? What I hear you say is in the context of perfect information and perfect transmission and understanding of information, folks make a different choice. And I'm just less sure. I just that hasn't been my observation in every instance. And I do think it's a little different than like if you have a cold than if you have cancer that's super emotionally charged that Mm -hmm. often drives behavior in a different way that again isn't necessarily about quality and value every time i think that's fair yeah yeah 
I think it's fair. I think I just have a hard time. I mean, there's like a ROI analysis here, right? Yeah. If we could get better information to patients, if we could work on not having this crazy variability in price and quality that happens, you know, for some services in some communities in some places, if we adjusted for all the things that are within our control mm-hmm. as a consulting organization that's helping health systems and health insurers and policymakers try to drive for more rational decision-making out there. If we did what was on our side of the street all day long, how much would be left for the consumer? I don't know that it's where we would think the next bang for our buck would be. Yeah. No, that's, it might be. Yeah, totally fair. It starts to hit at a fundamental issue that I feel certain you and I are probably are really close on this, but it would be worth testing. I think what we're describing is the reconciliation of healthcare as a business function and as a commodity with a public service, right? Because those viewpoints are radically different. How you would regulate it, I would love your thoughts as having been in the government side, how the government views this. But, you know, if this were a public good, we would regulate prices in a much different way. We would organize that much differently. Frankly, we would finance it much differently, right? And have access to be different than what it is. Just constantly run head on into this concept of We kind of believe it should be a public good, and we do a lot of things to drive care in that way, yet we run it as a business. And as a business, your job is to create margin for either shareholders in the private sense or operating margin and reinvestment in the community side or the nonprofit side, excuse me. And those things don't align in many instances, right? Otherwise, we wouldn't see the variation we would see that we see now or some of the other variation. I don't know if, you know, and I have certainly feelings about this. We should view this closer to a public good because that's frankly how we administer it in many cases, but just do it in a really dumb way today and sort of anxiously awaiting for a structure that administers that public good in a more rational way, but would love to hear your experience and thoughts. And then if you have, if you think about it, you know, how as a policymaker, how did you view that reconciliation of those two thoughts? So I completely agree that we've just chosen the messiest possible path of values in healthcare in America. We want it to be a public good if you income qualify. We want it to be a public good if you're old enough and sick enough. We want it to be a public good sometimes if you're a mom or a baby. Right. Everybody else, you're on your own. And we want it to be a business. I mean, I'm sure your 401k, my 401k, everybody listening has, you know, somewhere your financial retirement is tied up in organizations in the stock exchange and this industry and what it makes. And so we've chosen the, the most complicated, the most messiest path through all of that. And sometimes do I wish that were different, I do. I think my penchant that I talked about earlier for like the middleman in healthcare, not the middleman in healthcare, but the middle layer in the implementation of change. I also have this empathy for this is the kitchen we have to cook in right now. Mm -hmm. And that's how we thought about it as policymakers. I'll credit my colleague, Dr. Mai Fong, with when she oriented new staff at the Innovation Center said, we have a lot of great things going for us at the CMS Innovation Center. We have a $10 billion, 10-year appropriation. We have this legislative authority to sort of break some of the rules that aren't working in Medicare and Medicaid to try to test what might work. That's great. But this is also a government kitchen. So we have a clearance process and you have to write an ISIP and you can't, you know, do certain things in your pursuit of information because you've got to follow the rules here. This is the kitchen we have to work in. So I have a passion for, you know, our lives are brief and short and brutal and awesome. And you get to work with, you know, the spot that you were, you know, born into and moving forward in. This is the messy spot that healthcare is in today. A hundred years from now, I don't think we'll still be in this spot, but I do think that probably for the rest of my lifetime, we will be. And so how do we just work with what we've got to try to make it 
better yeah. everywhere that we can. Yeah. Yeah. That's totally fair. You know, when I often talk to CEOs or CFOs in particular, and we talk about value-based care, the feedback is, I've been hearing about this for a couple of decades now, as if to say that's kind of cute. And, you know, we still have to operate, in, to your point, operate in the way we need to operate in order to survive this year. And perhaps the promises of value-based care haven't delivered. I haven't heard that here, thankfully, to say, but I've heard that multiple times all over the country. What is mm -hmm. your response to that in terms of saying, you know, eh, I kind of believe it when I see it and it hasn't really delivered. So there's a rule in politics that you don't necessarily knock on the door with the sign of the opposition in the front yard. <laughs> go to the go to the next door. So I'll say that to start. Like you just can't convert everybody. Mm-hmm. But you got to find your believers and your champions who say, there's a better way to come to work. There's a better way to leave this office at the end of the day. And I still believe that value and what we're trying to transform towards in population health has this really sweet spot of being what patients need and what any of us who went into careers in healthcare went into it to do. And I think, I believe maybe it's the Pollyanna in me or the optimist, but you got to focus on the hope. And so to that CFO who's hard-brained about it and says, you know, I just don't see the proof in the pudding. You know, we did ourselves damage by not being rigorous in our ROIs as we got out in this work. I was part of that. You may have been part of that. As lots of people were part of that. We had things like, we're going to invest in these transformations of care. Maybe it's technology, maybe it's data analytics, maybe it's certain practitioners, um, care coordinators, and we're going to hope that they avoid hospitalizations and that's somehow going to pay for this. And we were kind of sloppy about it. And I don't think those ROIs already proved, uh, you know, all proved out. And I think that we also invested in a lot and you only save an avoided hospitals, hospitalization once. And so if you invested in 75 strategies to avoid that one hospitalization, that's really hard to get an ROI on. So I think, you know, we might have to come back around to that CFO when we've done better at those ROIs. And I think the data is getting there for us. And I think the some of the federal models for alternative payment are starting to take into account savings and the perpetual wheel of savings may not be the only thing to be measuring ourselves against, especially in cases of underserved populations or rural populations, it's not even necessarily savings that is what we need. We need access. Right. Um, and so I think, you know, that's going to start to color the decisions and the shaping of future programs more than it has. So that's how I think about that. I love it. Meg, that's probably a great place to start because I share your belief and really appreciate the conversation today. I feel like we could probably do this for a few hours here, but we'll uh, cut off for today, but maybe plan for another time to talk some more about some other big issues. That sounds lovely. Thanks so much for having me, Rob. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. And if folks are listening, please rate us on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have ideas for future episodes, please leave comments on your favorite social media posts. Thank you very much for listening.